On a cold week like this week, doesn't a cup of Boyer's Coffee sound delicious? Head to their website, boyerscoffee.com. You can order flavors like hazelnut, French vanilla, Denver blend, butterscotch toffee, southern pecan. You get my point. The list goes on and on. While you're there, sign up to get on their email list. I do it. I subscribe every week. I get great offers to buy maybe two bags of Boyer's Get One Free or other great discounts. We highly advise you to go to boyerscoffee.com. Or if you just want to pick up a bag as you're snuggling up at home or a box of Keurig from Boyer's Coffee, just head on over to your local supermarket. You can also find Boyer's at Sam's Club or, of course, at Walmart. Another reminder, if you happen to be in the area, head on over to 73rd and Washington, pick up a bag of coffee from their coffee cottage, or order up a fresh roasted cup of coffee from their coffee truck. You can't miss it at 73rd and Washington. We may not like the cold, but we do love our Boyer's Coffee. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Brownman. As we tape today, the Rockies situation. The Rockies record is 20 and 22, and they are sitting outside the playoffs. you got to get your act together at home. You know, your big three in Story and Arenado and Blackman, they have to lead the way, and then you have to get significant contributions from other guys. And Drew visits with Rockies third base and infield coach Stu Cole. When do you send a runner? And how do you coach Arenado and Story? Plus, Coach Cole shares how the club dealt with last month's social upheaval. Met as a big group, a whole unit. Uh, you know, a couple people spoke along with myself and, you know, just expressed the feeling that we had. And I just told them, I said, if you have anything at this point, you know, go ahead and bring it out and speak from the heart. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Brownman. Julie, I am sipping on a Boyer's Coffee right now because it's early in the morning, early on Wednesday morning as we tape this. And what the bleep? Are you kidding me? It was 101 on Saturday. Yeah. I was at a ball game, one of my kids' games. I, it was 97 on Sunday. We broke records Saturday and Sunday. And then there's three inches of snow at my house. Come on now. I have a bone pick with people like you, Drew. We live in Colorado. I loved it. Julie, I have to interrupt for a second. Yes, I love Colorado. I tell people all the time we have the best weather in the country. And we do have those crazy periods where it's 75 one day, 75. And then the next day, you know, it gets down to freezing. This, Julie, was triple digits down to the 20s. That ain't supposed to happen. It was a little weird, to be honest. Um but I don't know. It kind of feels good, right? It's September. So, uh, okay. So we were running downtown in a bikini the other day. And now all of a sudden you, you have to get your down jacket out. I was not running around downtown in a bikini. Um, all right. So what we don't like, maybe one of us likes snow. Maybe one of us doesn't. I know what we don't like is the results uh, last night uh, out in San Diego. However, we're going to turn this a little bit as we tape today on Wednesday I kind of dig the road trip so far. I know one part was heartbreaking, but what they did against L.A., I'll take every time. Listen, they they couldn't beat L.A. if they had borrowed Mike Trout from the Angels, if they had borrowed Freddie Freeman from the Atlanta Braves, if they had borrowed Jacob DeGrom from the New York Mets. I mean, that's what it seemed like when the Rockies played the Dodgers. Do you realize they had lost? 17 of 18 games in L.A. after they looked like they came back on Friday night with the Grand Slam from Kevin Pillar. I mean, that was huge. He's, he's had a nice impact on the Rockies. Really good move at the trade deadline. 
Um, and then they, they lose Friday night. And you're like, they can't beat them. It doesn't matter what they do. But they found a way on Saturday. They found a way coming back on Sunday to win. First time they'd won a series out there since June of 2018. So, yeah, the first two games, to your point, Julie, in San Diego, disappointing the one nothing loss uh, in the ninth inning on Monday. Tuesday becomes a blowout even after Nolan hits a three-run home run in the first inning. Uh, but as we tape, you have a chance, if you win today, to go 3-3 three and three on that road trip. And, Julie, you're right. If you if I told you with the Rockies one game beneath 500 when they embarked on that trip, if they could go three and three out west against the two best teams, in my opinion, in the National League and come home and then you got to get your shit together at home. That's a good trip. Yeah, it's a good trip, um, which they, I guess, had to have. And they fortunately came up with that. So as we tape today. The Rockies record is 20 and 22, and they are sitting outside the playoffs if the playoffs started today. So even though it's it's a rough road trip, I mean, they have they they had to do it. They have to do it to stay in the mix. Right. They, they had to be solid. I, I figured going out, it, it, they couldn't be worse than two and four. Three and three would be terrific. And then, as I said, you got to get your act together at home. I know you don't have the advantage, nor does anybody else, of fans in the crowd, you know, the the 10th man in baseball, if you will, the 10th person in baseball, if you will. Yeah. Um, but here's the here's the deal, Julie. You have nine you have nine games at home. You have the Angels, who they have, they have Mike Trout, and they have Shohei Otani, and, and they have Anthony Rendon, but they haven't been great. They, they've underachieved or they, they lack pitching typically each year. Then you have Oakland, a really good team coming in, but you're 2-0 against Oakland this year. And then you get back inside the NL West. Julie, they have to have a dominant homestand because I still believe it's going to take minimum of 30, if not 31 wins, to get into the postseason. So, I mean, it doesn't take a mathematician with, with only a handful of games left to figure out how many you have to win to arrive at that figure. What happened to Chi-Chi Gonzalez last night? It was disappointing. I'm a, I'm a big Chi-Chi fan. I don't, uh, you know, he's a former number one pick. He's, he's not a front-end rotation guy, but, you know, he had, a, he had a really good September last year. He competes. Uh, he knows how to pitch. I'm biased because you will, you will not meet a nicer human being than Chi-Chi uh, Gonzalez. It, it was so good, Julie, to see Nolan hit a home run on the road, a meaningful blow on the road. He had not hit a home run all year on the road. And then a three-run shot against their ace, their big pickup, Mike Clevenger, uh, a week or so ago. And it's 3 nothing Colorado. Man, awesome start. They had been shut out 21 straight innings in San Diego until that swing of the bat. You're off and running. And then Chi-Chi, he wasn't wild in the first, but he was trying to shave corners, and then he walks the first guy. Then he walks Tatis after walking Grisham. Then he walks Machado, and you're like, oh, my gosh, he's going to give it right back. And, you know, he got an out on a strikeout, and then he hits a guy. Buddy, five hitters in, has to pull him out. And then Will Myers, who kills the Rockies, he'd go to the Hall of Fame if he played the Rockies every day. He, uh, against uh, Jose Mejica making his major league debut, he hits a grand slam, and it was ugly the rest of the way. So, um, you know, 
they'll, they'll reconfigure their rotation after the off day on Thursday, but they have to get more consistent pitching. Uh, I'll give you a stat that you, uh, you may not be aware of, and this is hard to stomach, but their first 15 games, Julie, when they got off to the fabulous start, they didn't give up. They didn't have a blowout in, in their rotation or their bullpen um, at all. But in the 27 games since those 15, 10 times, that's more than a third of the time, a lot more than a third of the time, they've given up 10 runs or more in a game. You, wow. you can't win that way. No. That's uh, – God, that, that one is, is tough to hear after such positive news at the start of the season. We're going to talk to Stu Coles a little bit later in the podcast, the third base coach for the Rockies. Um, but before we do that, before we take a break, I want to talk about something that – and I watched the broadcast, and credit to you, I tuned in last night, and God, I don't know what the score was. It wasn't good, Drew. But I have to say, um, you guys do a good job of when the game is a little out of hand of still being entertaining. So um, credit to you. Um, well, thank you. So, because we can find a lot of people who didn't find us very entertaining, and I think it was our fault that uh, the Rockies lost fourteen to five. No. But what I do, I can tell you guys are so high on Romeo Tapia this year, and rightfully so. It, it's fun to listen to your commentary about him and to learn more about him, and to you know highlight him right now when when a few things are going wrong. He's not. Romeo has really done a marvelous job, and. We're going to talk a little bit later on about, you know, Buddy and and how quick you have to make decisions in, in a 60-game season. And Rymel got an opportunity early in the year, and he started really slowly. I want to say he went one for his first 12, and, you know, he, he all of a sudden was not playing much because, you know, he, he hadn't contributed a lot uh, offensively. When he got his second opportunity, he took off. And he has taken over as the Rockies' leadoff guy. I don't when I, when I fill out my book, I don't. I just put his name in there. I don't even have to see Buddy's official lineup yet. I know he's going to bat leadoff in every game he gets on. He had a 19 game stretch that ended on Monday of reaching, and uh, you know most of the time it's with with hits, but he's walking a lot more. He's cut down on his strikeouts. He's been a great catalyst. And um, it, it's a really good story because he's been up and down the last few years. He's a guy the Rockies have been high on. This kid has a tremendous work ethic. So it's exciting to see his growth and his improvement. And, uh, you know, he, he's been really, really good for them the last three or four weeks. You know, Rob is going to be a key for the Rockies to make the postseason and continue to make a run here over the next two and a half weeks. In a few moments, we're going to talk about idolatry, not only in sports, but in life. But first, I want to tell you about our friends at Steel, S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. They have power tools for everyone, whether you are a person that is doing a project uh, on a daily basis or one of those uh, weekend warriors they have the right stuff for you. They're the official handheld outdoor power equipment of the Colorado Rockies, and they have over 9,000 dealers around the country. You're going to find gas, electric, and battery-powered tools to get the job done. I have a number in my garage from blowers to trimmers to uh, chainsaws to little handheld chainsaws. They have terrific, easy-to-use equipment, and they have Great, great folks who back them up wherever you go. Again, 9,000 steel dealers around the country. 
It's made by steel, S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. And with the NBA and NHL playoffs in full swing, Rockies are going into their stretch run. NFL season coming up this week, if you can believe it. It's time for you to get in the game by playing on the Bet Monarch app. It's so easy to do. Just download the Bet Monarch app in the Apple App Store for your Apple devices or on Monarch Casino's website, which is monarchblackhawk.com for your Android devices. Here's another cool thing we want to tell you about. Every wager earns comps for use on the Monarch Casino property up in Blackhawk. And if you do decide to head up to that beautiful casino, you can wager 24-7 on their sports betting kiosk. There are lots of sports to bet on these days. But if you want to get into the game from the comfort of your home in this cold week, head on over to the Bet Monarch app. Julie, every day in life, you know, famous people, real people pass away. It's a part of life. We understand that. Every once in a while, you hear of someone passing. You know, you get the alert on your phone or if you're watching television or you're on the Internet and it makes you pause. I had that instance a little more than a week ago. When Tom Seaver passed at 75, the great right-hander of the New York Mets primarily, won 311 games and and really one of the greatest right-handed pitchers of all time, it made me pause. I knew he had been dealing with dementia. I'd read about that. I'd read a number of articles about that. Um, But still, 75, first of all, very young. And I think back to growing up in New York, and I'll tell you a little story about it. If you grow up in New York, and maybe it's the same in Chicago, but particularly in New York, your allegiance to teams is passed down generationally. My grandfather was a New York Giant fan in football and in baseball. That was passed on to my father, who passed it on to me. The thing is, and I remain a New York Giant football fan, in baseball, the Giants had left. I was born in 63. They were already out in San Francisco. So at that point in time, my dad, like many Giant fans of the baseball team that played at the Polo Grounds, adopted the Mets. So I was a Mets fan growing up. And I know a lot of people say, well, hey, growing up in New York, you you know, do you root for both the Yankees and the Mets? No, you typically root for one or the other. And I was a Mets fan. And the Mets were lousy when I was a real little kid. But then I'll never forget, in 1969, they took over New York behind number 41, Tom Seaver. And they shocked the Baltimore Orioles in the World Series. And they went from the worst team anybody had ever seen when they were an expansion team in 62 to world champions seemingly overnight, the amazing Mets. And they took over New York. In a Yankee town, they became the story And it lasted for a while. And one of the biggest reasons why is Tom Seaver. Not only his greatness on the mound, his dominance, 200-plus strikeouts year after year, but he had an intelligence to him, a charisma to him that really brought so many people together, especially during a turbulent time. We're living in turbulent times right now. But it was the 60s and then into the early 70s. And Tom Seaver embodied not only what was great about the the Mets during that that first period, but even when they weren't very good, Tom Seaver was a guy you could get behind. And uh, it made me stop, Julian. It also made me think about other moments in time where I said, whoa, I can't, 
I can't believe that person is gone. And I think I think sometimes, and this is where I'm leading you to, Julie, somebody passes away that is really famous and it kind of marks time, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of, you know, I when I was growing up, I was a huge Bronco fan and a huge Nuggets fan. And that was just, and I was so passionate about it. And I know you don't like to have sports heroes and that's not your thing. But I think when I was growing up, I did um, for a number of years. And as you're telling this to me, I'm thinking, well, gosh, you know, what happens when that person passes away? Um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a big deal because it was a, a big part of my life and a big part of emotion and big part of something that you were passionate about. And yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's sad, but it, and it's also, um, it's a, it's a big moment. So I think, well, I haven't had maybe that person yet pass away that it was big as Tom Seaver was in your life or that moment of your life. Um, I think a lot of people out there do. Um, and we can all kind of remember, you know, when those even celebrities or politicians, um, when we hear that news and we know this is bigger than just the, your average person passing away because it, it, that person represents so much to so many people. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is that. And, and I'll give you an example. And I had had the opportunity to meet Seaver, you know, a few times because he got into broadcasting. He was uh, certainly into his his winery out in California. I think that from everything I read was his main passion, you know, later on in life. Um, and as you said, I've never really been into sports idolatry or idolatry at all, because I, I always believe, listen, you know, just like you tell kids when they're getting ready to compete against maybe a really good team or a team they've heard about us. They, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you. But did you feel like that as a little kid? I mean, I understand as an adult, but as a kid, you felt like that? Well, I I don't know if I felt the, the same way I do now because you're a kid, but, you know, I was a huge Lawrence Taylor, you know, fan because I was a big Giant fan and Lawrence Taylor turned around the fortunes almost single-handedly uh, of the Giants. But I don't think I would fumble for my words if, you know, I were to meet, you know, Lawrence Taylor or anybody else, because I realize, you know what, they're just like, you know, yeah, they, they've been blessed with great, you know, ability athletically and whatever their sport was. And, and I think everybody has certain things that they're that they're good at. And so I, I just I find that. I don't know, kind of shallow to go, oh my goodness, that's so-and-so. I think as an adult, I think as a kid though, that's why it's so powerful when these people maybe pass away. What you're alluding to is, yeah, you know? Well, I'll give you an example. I remember when Jackie O, when Jackie O died, I was like, Jackie O, I mean, because you, you just kept thinking of, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy as this young, even though it was before, really before I was born, I mean, Kennedy was assassinated. I was six months old. But the images of, of Jackie Kennedy was this young, vibrant, beautiful, uh, you know, first lady. She was a first lady in her 30s. And you just think, OK, she's forever, you know, that age, that person. Another one for me, and I know this sounds weird, was Paul Newman. Uh, Julie, you and I have kidded before. My my favorite movie or certainly one of my two or three favorite movies of all time is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I love I love Paul Newman. 
I, I just thought he truly was a was a movie star before we kind of threw that term around in a frivolous fashion. And when he died, and he died at eighty, um, I still have that magazine. You know how people, if somebody's super famous passes away, people will put together a, just a, a special, um, you know magazine just on that individual. I still have that thing upstairs in my uh, in my house. It marks time in your life. I, I think we can bring it back to modern day. Think about when Kobe Bryant passed away. Um, we could, it was shocking to adults. We could, but we've seen tragedies before, but think about what that meant for so many kids, right? Yeah. And, and that one even different in that, as I said, Seaver died younger than you hope somebody would, but still 75. Kobe Bryant dies in his early 40s. And that one didn't just mark time for adults, to your point. It marked time for kids because kids grew up with Kobe Bryant and and, and they'd say, well, he's not that much older than I am. And all of a sudden, you know, he is gone. And again, it, it just, it makes you pause. And I don't think doing that is a bad thing in life because we all live at breakneck speeds and it's okay to, to push, you know, to, to put uh, your, your hands on your shoulders and call a 20 second timeout every once in a while, like they do in the NBA and catch your breath and kind of assess, you know, everything going on, you know, in your life and in the world and, and kind of looking back and reflecting. And I don't know, I don't want to get overly deep, but that's, that's what the passing of Seaver did for me uh, last week. I was actually with you, Drew. I don't know if you remember when you, we was right after we taped a podcast and uh, I saw that you looked at your phone and you saw the news about Tom Seaver. And I could tell that that, that was a tough one. And um, yeah, it, it's a good to take a moment and kind of think about those things and take a pause. And speaking of taking a pause, Coming up right now, we're going to take a pause and listen to an interview that you did with Rockies third base coach, Stu Cole. Um, you guys covered a lot of topics, the current Rockies team, some other, some, some social issues. And it, it's a good conversation with a really interesting guy. Yeah, Stu's a guy that, you know, most of the coaching staff, people don't get to know well in terms of fandom. But Stu is, is he's a sweetheart of a guy. He's a baseball guy through and through. He, you know, he played, he got to the big leagues for, for a literal cup of coffee. And we'll talk about that, but he's, a, he's basically an original Rocky. He's been with the Rockies um, since they began at some capacity. Most of those early years, he was in the minor leagues, coaching, managing, and just, just a special human being. In addition to being a good baseball guy, he's the Rockies third base coach and he's the Rockies infield uh, coach as well. So here you go. Our ideal homeless interview with Rockies third base coach, Stu Cole. You know, for a lot of people, Stu Cole has been a fixture with the Rockies organization for a long time. I think it may surprise uh, some fans to realize you've been with the club now a quarter of a century. That sounds a lot longer than 25 years, doesn't it, Stu? Yes, it is. Uh, you know, I was here the first time they uh, had the higher minor league levels play and the big league team play. And back in 1993, I've been a part of the organization since. So, uh, you know, I've been around a long time. I've seen a lot of people come and a lot of people go. But, uh, you know, it's been fun being with this organization and they have treated me like family. I'll give people a quick background sketch. You, you played college baseball at UNC Charlotte in your hometown and you're drafted in the third round. And, uh, like so many, uh, you, you 
you know, you played for a while and like very few, you actually got to the big leagues uh, briefly with Kansas City. Um, I want to ask you about September 13th, 1991. Uh, you got your uh, you got your only big league hit. Um, do you remember that uh, that confrontation with Mike Jackson? Well, yes, I do. I remember it like it happened yesterday. Uh, it was one of those things where uh, we went extra innings. And the leadoff man got on, I think it was Jim Eisenreich, and uh, I was coming up next and was asked to bunt, and I had failed two bunt attempts and worked the count for three and two, and then they gave me the swing, and I saw the head gave Jim Eisenreich the steal on that 3-2 pitch, and I was just trying to just put the ball in play and end up hitting the line drive to right field, and we went on to win that game in extra innings. So, uh, you know, Mike Jackson, I knew he was one of the best relievers in the game at that time. And I knew we had a really good slider. And, uh, you know, with me being in that situation at that point, I just wanted to put the ball in play and ended up getting hit. When, when it happens, you're probably thinking, okay, that's the first of hopefully many. Um, what, what occurred around that time and, and uh, knowing how difficult it is to get to the big leagues but to stay also, um, when, when you look back, do you say, wow, I can't believe that was the only one? Yeah, uh, you know, I had a few more at-bats the rest of that season. Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of pinch-hitting roles that was uh, being brought up that time in the American League. And, uh, you know, I thought I was going to be there for a while. The next spring training, go to spring training, and I was on the team all the way up until the last day of spring training uh, before I got sent out. So uh, I know Bob Melvin, who was the manager with the Oakland A's at that point, uh, not right now. He was on our team, and uh, we had three catchers. Uh, we were either going to go with three catchers or, you know, two middle backup infielders. And they ended up uh, they ended up going with three catchers at that time, and I got sent down to AAA on that last day. And, uh, you know, I never had a chance to, you know, get back to the big leagues. But, uh, you know, the time that I spent there when I was there was very enjoyable, and, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything else. Are you able to pass that along, How not only how difficult the journey is, but how nothing's guaranteed to some young players that uh, that you have interactions with now as a coach? Yes, uh, I really used to do it a lot in the minor leagues when I was managing and, and hitting coach uh, coming through the Rockies organization. I used to just try to tell those guys, hey, look, you know, don't take anything for granted. You want to work hard every single day and put forth your best effort uh, each and every given night because you never know who's watching. You may not be in the big leagues with us. You may be in the big leagues with somebody else with a trade or acquisition or something. So uh, just go out and put forth the best effort and at the major league level try to instill that same thing to these guys and say, hey, look, you never know what's going to happen. This game will humble you. Uh, you can be going great at one point and then the next point you can be, you know, on a low. But you, you can't get disappointed. you got to keep an even keel. And just keep trying to go out there and battle and try to uh, give it your best each and every day and let the results take care of itself. Stu, I think you have one of the most difficult jobs in baseball being a third base coach because you have to make instantaneous decisions. You have to be so cognizant of the scoreboard, uh, you know, game situations, foot speed, arm strength. Uh, Take us through everything that goes through your mind when, you know, you have a runner at first, it's a seventh inning, maybe it's a four, three game either way. And, and there's a ball in the gap. Take us through your decision as to whether you send that guy when he gets to you or whether you, whether you hold him up. 
Well, all the things that you just mentioned come into play. You know, the scoreboard, the arm strength of the outfielder, the speed of the base runner, where the ball is hit. And I tried to play out the play in my mind before it even happened. And I also look and see who's on deck, if that person has been hot or if that person has been cold uh, and who's on the mound. So if there's a ball hitting the gap and we have a pretty decent run at first base and the guy in the outfield doesn't have a really strong arm, and there's a chance we can score that run, then I, I really try to score them. But if there's a situation where uh, we're down quite a few runs and we still need base runners and that runner doesn't really mean anything at that point in time, uh, and next guy coming up has been really hot, you may want to hold that guy up if that's going to be a bang-bang play at home plate. But uh, there are times when you want to make sure that if you send a guy from first to home on a ball hitting the gap, uh, there are times you want to make it 100% sure that you don't uh, get that guy thrown out and make sure that he scores that run. So a lot of things play into your mind whenever uh, you're out there at third base, and you try to see those things happen before they happen. So right now it's just become instinctual uh, when you be able to, when you come to making your decision. Stu, I've said this many times. You know this. I think you're one of the best in the game at making those decisions. It's not easy. Were you – were those skills honed in the minor leagues uh, in your route to eventually becoming a big league coach? Yeah, I think a lot of things uh, went along with that as me being a minor league coach, uh, coming through the minor leagues, uh, coaching third base, and getting that practice, getting that field. And I think a lot of times uh, you look back on as when you was a player. And, you know, I was a pretty good base runner. I tried to read things before they happened and try to – you know, be instinctual about everything so uh, nothing would sneak up on me. So I think a lot of those things as a player and also uh, being a minor league manager, coaching third base, uh, getting all that practice has really prepared me to where I am today to be able to coach third base at the major league level. One thing that people may or may not be aware of with you is that you're also the infield coach. So you you have the luxury and the pleasure of working with guys named Arenado and Story and and now young guys like uh, you know like a Garrett Hampson and Orion McMahon. Take us through your daily routine. I mean, I, I think to some people they may say, "Well, listen, you know, how hard can that be?" Nolan's one of the greatest we've ever seen, and his story is a great defender. Take us through your day and, and, and what you what you do with your work with your guys. Well, those guys have the routine just like they do on the offensive side. You know, the, those guys, they want to be great. They want to be a great, great player, not just an offensive guy. They want to be known as a great defensive player as well. And Nolan Arenado, he has this uh, – you know, routine that he does, and he is a great defender. And I think the reason why he is a great defender because he takes a lot of pride in his defense, and it shows through in his preparation whenever we're after taking ground balls. He takes his game speed. He works on plays that he may have to work in throughout the course of a game so he can be prepared and be instinctual because a lot of those plays that he makes, I mean, he makes them look easy because he practices and he works on those plays, and Trevor Story does the same thing. He goes out there, he has his routine that he does every single day, and sometimes later on in the season we'll kind of back off a little bit, but they'll still go out there and do their routine and take ground balls and prepare themselves for the game. And I think that has carried over to guys like McMahon and uh, Garrett Hampson, you know, to see these guys go about their business and see how they work, and, you know, they want to perfect that as well because they don't want to be the part of the infield 
that lets the, uh, you know, the pitchers down when they're out there trying to pitch and we got to make a play. So I think they do a very good job of, uh, you know, not taking things for granted, going out there and preparing themselves well and making sure that they're out there ready to play and to make plays for our team. You know, Stu, if you were running a clinic back home in Charlotte, uh, you know, with, with teenage kids or, or even college kids, I, I would imagine you're going to throw out different pointers and different uh, ideas on technique. How often do you do that with the guys who are the best on the planet uh, in, in fielding ground balls and, and making throws? Is there, is there much technique in terms of conversations with guys? No, it's not much as technique as much as it is, you know, just reminding them, you know, what they're doing. You know, if it's footwork or if it's, you know, arm slot on where they're releasing the ball from. And, you know, just reminding those guys uh, whenever you see something happen because when guys are that good, they feel it. But they don't feel it all the time. And that's whenever you kind of bring it to their attention because there are times whenever they may make a mistake and I don't even have to go to them. They'll come to me, and then they'll tell me, say, hey, you know, I got underneath that a little bit, or did I not get on top, or something like that. So they feel that, and that's the luxury of having guys like that. So you don't have to go up to them and, and, and talk to them every single time there's a mistake made because, you know, they know, they feel it, and they've been doing it for a long time. So uh, there are times whenever I just kind of mention those guys, whenever uh, I were, were doing a clinic back in Charlotte during the offseason, uh, I would bring up guys like Nolan, guys like Trevor Story and Tulo and DJ LeMayhew, you know, just bring those guys' name up and say, hey, this is how these guys went about their business. You know, this is how they prepared themselves. And, you know, guys that I was teaching back home, they would listen because they know those guys are, were the best of what they were doing at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Stu, hitter to hitter in the big leagues, now we see so much shifting. Uh, the guys look in the dugout or check their, their pregame cheat sheet on, on hitters. How often are you moving guys around uh, dependent on count, dependent on game situation? Uh, we have a, a thing that sheet that we get from our analytical staff, and then we'll go off of that. We'll do some studying with that, and then I'll look at some video and see how everything matches up. And then throughout the course of the game, uh, those guys were looking at me. Uh, we tried to use the card thing, you know, when we first got this thing started. And, you know, those guys feel like, you know, it's kind of taking them out of their rhythm, you know, getting preset and everything. So I just told them, say, well, we'll do what we're doing before, just peeking at me. If I got a movie, I'll move you. If not, then I'll tell you, okay, well, where are you at? But those guys, they, they do an outstanding job of trying to, you know, pay attention and trying to position themselves uh, with each and every hitter count situation but they do look in and i'll just look at the sheet and i'll see if uh you know everything matches up with where they're at at that point in time from the time that you were playing professionally as a middle infielder to now there are certain things that you have to drill um differently and for, i'll give you an example i mean you know when you, when you were playing you know it was a four six three it was a six four three double play now you have to work with the shifts the five six um, you know, different alignments, guys coming from different angles. Is that uh, something that you constantly have to do even after spring training? Yeah, we kind of, uh, you know, do that during batting practice, you know, work on some uh, shifting double plays and some uh, ground balls being taken out of the shift in certain positions because, you know, most of the time it affects the guys that are out the middle because now they're playing in a position that they're normally not used to playing in. 
and you got to make sure that those guys are taking ground balls back in the grass at second base. Uh, the shortstop are taking ground balls on the second base side in the infield, and the second baseman are taking ground balls on the shortstop side of second base. And, you know, there's a different, uh, you know, alignment that goes on, but, you know, you have to practice and you have to work on those things each and every day, and I think that's why these guys have adjusted to it. And I'm pretty sure every team in the major league, they pretty much do the same thing uh, that we're doing. So uh, it's just another part of trying to get these guys prepared and, and try not to have anything sneak up on us. We'll take a timeout from our conversation with Stu Cole to hear about Ideal Home Loans. Folks, if you are purchasing a new house or thinking about refinancing, hint, 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 I've told you that I've used these folks uh, several times over the years. They're terrific. Brent Ivinson's become a very good friend. It's Ideal Home Loans. They've taken such wonderful care of people in our area, also down in Arizona. And the reason they keep blossoming is they're outstanding in what they do. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and you can reach out to them, and they will do the same for you. Their number is 303-867-7000. Ideal Home Loans, 303-867-7000. They're embarking on 20 years in the business. Interest rates are fabulous right now. You need to take advantage. Give Brent Ivinson and his terrific team a call, 303-867-7000. Ideal Home Loans, 303-867-7000. And now back to our conversation with Rockies third base coach, Stu Cole. Hey, Stu, one of the things, I used to kid Mike Gallego about this, and I don't know if I've ever asked you this. Do you, there's an art to to passing signals along to the hitter and to the guys on base. Um, do you, in February, before you gather for camp or January, do you get in front of the mirror and practice giving signs? Because <laughs> it's really smooth when you watch someone like yourself, a big league third base coach, giving signs. But yeah, you can't repeat. And you you want to make sure you're not giving stuff away. Do you guys practice that? I'll tell you what, with everything that's going on now with all the scouts and everybody that's trying to key in on you so they can get your signs, I practiced in January, February, all the way up until September. And uh, I just continue to, you know, try to do things and, you know, kind of mix them up so the other team would not get my uh, signs and pick up on them. So, uh, you know, I practiced throughout the whole course of the season. Yeah, it's funny because there's a real art form to passing along signs and ultimately, you know, not having them – Stolen and making sure your guys don't get confused, huh? Absolutely, absolutely. And and the biggest thing is wanting to make sure that your guys get them and not trying to trick them, you know, so that the other opposition doesn't uh, steal your signs. But, you know, we do a pretty good job of uh, picking up our signs. And, uh, you know, well, I try to disguise them as much as I can so that I'm not doing the same thing each and every time so they can pick up on it. I'm going to ask you a question about two guys, one at a time, that you know you've had the pleasure of working with for for now a long period of time, and, and they're the obvious ones. But um, what impresses you the most about Nolan? Well, the thing that impresses me the most about Nolan is how much he cares about you know going out there and, and doing whatever he can to try to help the ball club win, and the way that he prepares himself. I mean, people that watch the game, they see the finished product of what this guy do from, you know, 3.30 all the way up until, 
you know, game time, how he prepares himself, how he gets himself ready. And that that's really what's some of the things that impress me about him, how he goes about his business and uh, how he gets set to go out there and play the game because uh, he, like I said before, he just doesn't want to be known as an offensive player. He wants to be known as one of the defensive players in the game as well at that position. And it has shown ever since that he's uh, been in the big league. So uh, that, that, those are some of the things that really impressed me. And the same question for Trevor, or maybe I'll alter it a little bit. What is it about Trevor that that people who watch him either in person in years past or on television now, um, what what wouldn't they realize about Trevor's story? Well, then they wouldn't realize now, but Trevor has done differently than when he came up to the big league now is he, he's uh, studying more pictures. He's wanting to be a base dealer. He's added that speed effect to his game, and you know, along with his power. So uh, when he first got to the big league, he really wasn't looking to be a base dealer. But, you know, the past couple of years, uh, he's been doing a lot of studying, uh, you know, trying to pick up on pitchers' moves and uh, picking out times when to go and when not to go. So with him – that's one of the things that has really impressed me with the way that he goes out there and he tries to get himself in the scoring position every single time. And, and people don't realize he, he's probably one of the fastest guys in the game. And you can see the plays that when he hits a ground ball, you know, it's bang, bang at first place. And whenever there's a chance for him to score from, you know, from first base or from second base on an infield single, uh, we've seen that a couple of times this year. So the, this, this guy has really impressed me with his speed. Now he has taken to the game. And uh, the things that he can, you know, do to try to help the ball club win with his legs, not only with his power. Yeah, Stu, you know, I've said that so many times on the air. People do not realize that he truly is one of the, you know, four or five fastest players in the game. You know, I'd love to see him and and Hampson and Byron Buxton and, you know, D. Gordon maybe a couple of years ago all have a all run a 60 because those guys, it'd be it'd be a photo finish. No, absolutely, absolutely. Those are some pretty fast guys you just named, and uh, Trevor's right up there with them. Hey, Stu, I want to change gears uh, with you a little bit. Um, you know, the the game of baseball from a, a diversity standpoint has has changed, and and maybe not necessarily for the better. If you go back, especially from an African-American participation in the sport 25, 30 years ago, there were a lot more young black kids who chose baseball, maybe over basketball, maybe over football. And more recently, with the unrest in in our country, um, Major League Baseball, a lot of teams decided to pause for a moment in light of things that were taking place, most recently what took place in Kenosha. When the club, your club, decided to protest last week and not play that game against Arizona, what were your emotions and your initial reaction? Well, we got together as a a whole group and talked about it, and I was one of the guys that got up and spoke, uh, you know, to the group. And, you know, I was very emotional about it, and I was very emotional whenever we played the game the day before. And, uh, you know, I I felt like, you know, I was – you know, really not in it as a whole uh, whenever we played that game that night before. And then when we met as a big group, a whole unit, uh, you know, a couple of people spoke along with myself and, you know, just expressed the feeling that we had. And I just told them, I said, if you have anything at this point, 
you know, go ahead and bring it out and speak from the heart. And I think a lot of guys did that, and the staff left the room, and we let the players decide, you know, whether or not we wanted to play the game that night, and, and we told them we was going to be behind, behind them 100%. And, uh, you know, they came up with the decision not to play, and uh, that's how it came about. And we, we stood behind them 100%. And, uh, you know, it, it was really left up to them to make that decision. So, you know, I was proud of the way that they handled the decision and, and proud of what they came up with. So, uh, you know, that was a very emotional time at that point. But uh, I think with a lot of guys, they had a chance to get, you know, some stuff off their chest. Because, you know, when you get in a situation like that, you never know what anyone is thinking about. And once you can express that, it's almost like you just exhale and, and all that weight and pressure is taken off of you and now you can relax again. What can maybe the greater society in our country learn from sports in general and maybe more specifically from the locker room, because whether it's Major League Baseball or the NFL or the NBA or even the NHL, um, there tends to be a more unified, for the most part, uh, understanding that people come from different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different religions, etc. And by and large, there seems to be greater harmony in those places then maybe greater society or at least how it's been portrayed? Well, I think the first and foremost thing is, you know, people have to listen and then people have to be informed about, you know, what's being taken place and just communicate. Because a lot of time, if you don't really know, you don't know how to handle a situation that's going to be put in front of you like we have been put in front of, you know, throughout the course of uh, this season. So I think the communication plays a big part and getting things out there, talking about the issue, and, you know, just really expressing yourself. Because I think there's a lot of people out there that they're really concerned about what's going on, but, you know, they don't really know or they don't know how to go about and handle the situation. So I think if you inform them more, if they ask more questions, and if they listen, I think they'll, uh, they'll have a better way of handling things. Uh, when they know more about it and know the situation at hand and uh, the information is put out there for them. Do you, do you think, uh, you know, with, with the locker room, that that if more people could peek into a, a locker room and see how, you know, guys do get along, that uh, it, it would almost be a learning lesson for, for folks outside of that environment? I, I think it's, uh, each locker room is different. You know, because uh, there are some locker rooms you have, you know, a few African-American players and diverse groups on their team, and then there are some that don't have any. So I think each locker room is different, and I think uh, the more that you can see how uh, these guys come together, uh, more so on the field when they're congratulating one another, more so than in the locker room, because in the locker room is more of a – uh, individual style type situation whenever guys are going to get prepared to go out and play that night. But, uh, you do have that interaction, uh, when guys first get to the ballpark. And, uh, you know, but as it goes on throughout the course of the day, guys kind of tend to do their own thing. So I think it's seen more on the, uh, the field than it would be in the clubhouse. Okay. Well put. Um, last couple of thoughts, Stu, and appreciate the time as always. 
with this club and, and uh, you know, this season being so different because of the volume of games uh, that are normally played versus this year, you guys are in a position uh, to make the postseason. You've taken some lumps, uh, you know, the last few weeks uh, after a wonderful start of 11-3. and three. Where do you see this team right now, and, and uh, what do you think of the next uh, few weeks in terms of the opportunities in front? Well, I, I really think it started whenever we uh, won that last home game before we went on the road trip when we came back and won the ball game. Uh, and then we went to L.A., and we had a chance to uh, win in L.A., and they came back and beat us in the first night. But the way that we rebounded from that loss and came back the next two nights and beat a team that has been our nemesis for a long, long time in that ballpark, uh, I think it kind of set the tone. The guys have come together. They can see the excitement on the bench when it was a play is being made or a key hit is done. Uh, I think we're in a good spot right now. Uh, last night was kind of a tough loss for us, but, you know, this team has done a tremendous job of coming back the next day, being ready to play and getting after it. So I think we're right there in the thick of things, and the guys know it, and they know we're down the home stretch, and they're going to give it everything they got you know, to try to get us to the playoffs. So uh, I like where we're at. It's just the, the attitude and the mental uh, attitude about everything that's going on with the ball club. Uh, everything is positive, and we feel like we're, out, we're not out of any ball game, and we still have a chance to win. So uh, I like where we're at. Good deal. And, Stu, what very few people uh, know is as we tape this uh, late morning, early afternoon in San Diego – it is now time for you to go to the ballpark because uh, <laughs> coaches get to the park like seven hours before the uh, game. It's a, it's a long day. Hey, Stu, it's always great visiting, man. It's always great catching up. I miss seeing you on a day-to-day basis, but uh, continued success and stay safe, my friend. All right. Thanks, Drew. Miss seeing you at the ballpark, man. You got it. Got Take it. Care. Okay, man. Good luck tonight. All right. Thank you. That's our Ideal Home Loans interview of the week. And talk about a cup of coffee. That's literally, it's not just a cup of coffee. I know what the meaning is, but literally one hit, that, that's that's a sip. But he got there, right? He got, and how many guys got there? He got there. He's one of the 19,000 and some odd at uh, this juncture that have made it to the major leagues. The old line about the big leagues, it's hard to get there. It's even harder to stay. And I've talked to so many people, players that – we're like Stu Cole. They had a, a brief moment in the big leagues. Mark Stripmatter, who's a roving instructor with the Rockies and has been with them for a long period of time, has become a good friend. Mark Stripmatter had four major league at-bats. He never got a hit. He had three strikeouts and I think a ground out. He was a September call-up. So he got 30 days in the big leagues. And again, never got a hit. Only had four at-bats. And he describes those 30 days as the greatest 30 days of his life to put on a big league uniform every day and, you know, to board a, you know, a big league team flight. And those 30 days that he was there were unforgettable for him. So, yeah, we, we talk about the Nolans and the Trevor stories and the Mike Trouts, all these great players. Most people don't careers don't approach that. And there's so many guys that come up for a moment in time. Stu Cole was one of those guys. And he thought his career would continue on. He described, you know, he got that hit and you know, he thought, OK, next spring training, hopefully I make the team and, you know, I'll have a big league career. And it just never worked out. And that is more frequently the story 
than the guys, as we said, that, that become stars. You know, if you're been a Rockies fan since the start, then Stu Cole, and you talked about it, is very near and dear to your heart. And we talk about moments in time being with the organization right from the get-go. Yeah. And and these are guys behind the scene that are so well thought of, not only from the organization, but when you if you went and talked to Trevor Story and said, hey, Stu Cole, you wouldn't even have to ask him a question. He didn't go on and on about what a, how much Stu has meant to him and and they have a special bond and there's great appreciation for coaches um that that help players and you think well how much does a player how much help does a player need they're already the best in the world they still need their confidence boosted they need that guy who's hitting them ground balls every day that guy that you know lightens the mood when you know you're going through a slump and and puts a you know, a smile on your face. So those guys behind the scenes that we don't often hear about, the Stu Coles of the world, um, they have a big impact on on the players that we all talk about every day. Drew, as we end this podcast, as the Rockies, as we tape this at 20 and 22, they are in ninth place right now out of the playoff run if the playoffs started today. So let's talk about, we talked about it last week, but it's going to change every week as, you know, we get down to the final stretch run. The keys, give me a couple keys to securing a playoff spot. Well, I'm going to simplify it, Julie. They have to have good baseball symmetry. And what I mean by that is they, they have to consistently pitch well. You know, we've seen good pitching and then we've seen not so good pitching. I mean, Kyle Freeland, his last outing uh, was outstanding. Um, their bullpen has to be much better. They've had some good moments lately, and then they've had some awful moments. We know that. Their bullpen has been exceptionally high ERA. And they have to swing the bats up and down the lineup better. And I'll begin with, you know, your big three. You you know, your big three in in Story and Arenado and Blackman, they have to to lead the way, and then you have to get significant contributions from other guys uh, up and down that lineup. Baseball symmetry, they have to pitch – um, more consistently, and they have to swing the bats more consistently over these last two and a half weeks if they want to make it to the postseason. It's that simple. We talked about at the start of the year that this was going to be, if you, one way to look at it is it's going to be an exciting season because it's a sprint. So however you want to look at the, the rocky start, and what happened since then, I think you have to look at in the next two and a half weeks, Knock on wood, it's going to be a very exciting two and a half weeks. It's going to be exciting. It was set up that way, especially once they expanded the playoff field to keep virtually every team in it. Um, so it'll go it'll go day by day. It'll go night by night. I know I'm like a lot of you out there. When they started 11 and 3, you thought, boy, hopefully they can put it in cruise control the last couple of weeks and it'll be a foregone conclusion uh, there in the postseason. It has not worked out that way. That's okay, but it's going to come down to – winning more games than they lose over these these next uh, two and a half weeks. Uh, they have the talent to get it done. Now they have to go and uh, perform. Drew, stay warm, and I'll see you next week. It's going to be 100 again by the weekend, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Have a great week, everybody. Because you're hot.